special guests. Am I special? You, you are. are. very special. Mark Marin is here. Oh, thank you. I... Oh, my God. You know, I told this story to everyone. Everyone stops me and asks about when I did your show. And I tell them, that is so funny because I, you don't know how close I was to turning around and going the other way. Because the I podcast? Yeah, I, re- because, I remember. Because I couldn't find, I, I, <laughs> I know of Highland Park, but it's like this Bermuda Triangle in my mind. Of where it's placed in L.A. Sure. I, where I, is it? It's, uh, it's east. Uh. You know, it's sort of right between Glendale and Pasadena, just shy of Eagle Rock. But I, in my recollection, you were not updated in your technology and you chose to go it without. Exactly. That's what that's what happened is I don't do GP, no, GPS. No, he'll do a Thomas guy no, before no, he no, does no. that. You know what I do? I'll look on the computer before I leave somewhere and go, oh, I see. There's the five. You get off there. Is and that you go just because uh, is that uh, sort of a mental exercise so you don't go senile? Because there's no reason to fight GPS I at agree. this point. Well, there are times when I have used it when it was too confusing. And ironically... Strangely, it was uh, a few weeks ago when it was near that place again. There are a bunch of uh, filming studios over there off of Worth or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's near that area. That whole area for me here in Los Angeles is a Bermuda Triangle. The Glendale Highland Park, Pasadena, Eagle Rock. No, it's not not that part of it. It's the lower part, the, the part that's closer to the 10. The part that's closer to the 10 and and that sort of quadrant um east of of downtown yeah and uh north of the 10 that whole area yeah, i don't right know anything there. about that yeah. mm-hmm. i i i know my area i know where we are yeah but see <laughs> i know that the ocean is west is west is but west you're from new jersey too aren't you i'm from the east coast i was born in jersey yeah mm-hmm. my family's from jersey but yeah that orientation thing yeah. well i'm from jersey and for me growing up in, in new jersey then moving to new york city when i was 17 it's yeah. been an equal amount of time there yeah. when you move to la they do everything but southeast corner and and i don't like is it on the right or the left I can't. No, I'm completely confused. When you're when you're brought up and you're oriented that the ocean is east. Well, that too. You yeah. can't. Yeah. It's you know, almost impossible to switch Turn everything it. It's around. weird. Yeah. But uh, but I know that I never go there. But right. even I, so, you never I know went. That if I have to go to the west side, I'm like, is there any way <laughs> yeah. that we can change this? Yeah. This is about as far west as I go. For yeah. you guys, that was it. Aww. What is that about? Yeah, everything's about over going. Here. We, no, I, I'll come here, but mm. this is about We're as in far. Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood's about it because because once so I fuck go the valley. Well, the valley's a little different. Depends where in the valley. But okay. if I go to Santa Mo- Santa Monica or Culver City, it's like from where I live, you got to pack a tent, yeah. a sleeping no, bag, sure. two meals. Yeah. But anybody kidding? does to go to Santa Monica. It's like yeah. four. It's four hours out of your day. I okay. can't right. take it. Right. I agree. Right. Well, I got to tell you, the reason I will learn a map and figure out where I'm going is it's the Boy Scout in me. Is yeah. that I want to know tactilely? Mm. Is that a word? Yeah. Uh, how I got there and sure. where, how to get out of it, and what's the escape route? Sure. Because I, I can't just. Oh, trust... there's no escape from here. No, there's no escape. <laughs> <laughs> True. No, there's, 
no getting out. No getting out. No, but that's why I I do that. But you know, there are times when I will pull out the GPS. Yeah. And... Well, I couldn't. I never could understand a Thomas Guide. To me, that was the most baffling oh, yeah. piece of literature yeah. ever it was created. Huge and it's you huge. can't. But I yeah. never knew how they connected. They or didn't how connect. They, did. it was they didn't stupid. connect. It's stupid. I'm glad. They're probably out of business, right? I yeah, would they think. Have to be. You yeah, have one street on one page. Ten pages later would be the next the, street. Yeah, I, yes. But some people knew it. Like some people yes. relied I on it. They they could do it. But I always had one when I was out here back yeah, in the I day. I had one back but then. But I never, I was like, never this is it. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other day, on my front porch was a Yellow Pages. What? They had delivered, <laughs> they, yeah, still they, deliver. yeah, they still deliver. they still deliver them. Why? I feel bad, like, I feel like there's, they're wasting. This they planet wasting. is so fucked I don't know, is. but I think that might be, it might be a class thing. I mean, I, you know, from what I can tell, there's still a lot of people in the country that, you know, don't have good internet, that may not have computers, that are still operating at a fairly, you know, what we would call seemingly primitive way that I, yeah. I still think they must, some people still use them. Can't they use a census and figure that out? Well, no, I think you it's I mean? true. I think there are a lot of people that are either set in their ways or don't have access to a lot still? of things that we have access to. Still? Yeah, yeah, sure. Are you kidding? I don't think my father's listened to a podcast that I've done. He, he claims he can't figure it out. <laughs> it's, a, it's a purple <laughs> button on your phone. I think, it, I think it's something deeper than that. But he, <laughs> he claims that, uh, you know, I interviewed the the goddamn president. President of the United I, States of America. I do not think my father listened to it. <laughs> And I, at that point, like I won't get into it with him because yeah. I know that it's not going to go well. Right. But right. like, what does he say when people say your your son interviewed Obama? That was amazing. Yeah, I can't figure out how to download it. <laughs> okay. Now between bigger problem. Right. Between right. you and me and Michelle. Yeah. What um what is that about? Is it does he not? I I have a joke that I do sometimes, and it it's not really a joke. It's an observation that I think all father son relationships on on some level are are a battle to the death. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh and I think that yeah, there are some men, there are some fathers that I uh, somehow achieved enough selflessness to be you know proper parents and and uh, and and selfless enough to to give their kids a sense of self. But some fathers, I think it's not unusual for them to be hyper-competitive, self-involved. And uh, my father, I believe, is is a narcissistic person, almost pathologically, to where they can't see you as anything but an extension of mm-hmm. them. Right. And once you defy that, yeah. then it's just a threat. Mm. Right. And so then that's that. Yeah. So you're a threat and, you know, they, they, you got to keep, you know, kind of maintain appearances so you pay lip surface to love and missing and, you know, how you doing or whatever. But on some level, they remain disinterested because uh, you're no longer an appendage. Right. Well, I think that's probably the biggest the biggest challenge in being a parent is being able to uh, uh, let the evolution of the relationship uh, fall in the in the healthy place it should. Because initially, this young person who comes to you is you're actually their their ward. You have to take care of you them. Control you control everything you, they do. You, yeah. Everything you at that one point when you send them off to kindergarten, um, they're out of your hands, and you then help nurture them through gentle nudges or whatever. Yeah. And then as it goes on, the, the relationship changes on. But I think most people do not change the relationship. They always because the parent wants to feel in control and the parent is also looking at their own mortality if it means if that kid is evolving into a man that I'm means dying. That I'm dying yeah you know yeah do you have kids do you want to have kids no I'm not I'm th- I think I'm through the tunnel on that I think I, <laughs> you think you think I dodged a bill uh, dodged the a Holland bullet or the Lincoln I either one yeah <laughs> whichever's the quickest uh no I I didn't uh, the 
one thing I've realized lately, because I've had opportunities, I've been married twice, and I guess you know people say you're a man, you could always have them, but I'm like, why would I do that now? Yeah. I, I, and when I really think about it, when I was a kid, it was never my dream. You know, some right. people don't even think twice about it. I'm going to have kids. Of course yeah. I'm going to have kids. I never thought that. I think all I was thinking was, I just want to feel okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. That, that was my goal. I just want to feel okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of there. And I don't, I like kids okay. And I don't, I'm not sure uh, I, I wouldn't be, I, I think I'd be a good father, but it was not, I don't know. I'm. I, I know from what how I was brought up that you know, I'm self-involved. I'm incredibly panicky. I'm full of dread. I'm not always positive. And I know that a lot of people say like, well, kids, you know, you change. But you're you Jewish, know, you really, aren't you? This I'm is Jewish. Order nature. <laughs> yeah, I know. But like my parents didn't do a great job. I survived. I did okay for myself. And I, I appreciate the good things they gave me. But, you know, my brother's got a few kids and he's doing okay. And it's very challenging. And uh, I don't know that um, on a deeper level that I could uh, override the emotions that I was brought up with, you know, right. and that, that seems to be the goal, but I don't, I think that success rate on that is probably 50, I'm 50. With, yeah. I'm with you on that. And I feel, I've always felt the exact same way. I didn't want to pass on any of the craziness, even inadvertently without even even knowing that's about how it, it happens. That's what happens. Sure. And, and then uh, a lot of people, my age and, and younger who have children, uh, try to circumvent that thing and they, they, they screw their kids up even more. Well, I'm probably screwing mine up royally. That's why one has depression. The other one hates me. But at the same time, I made it a point in my life to do, the, I was telling Rue, the opposite of the things that I But see, I think that's that a I mistake that people, yeah, that's I think a, that's a mistake. Probably. That's what my probably brother does. Probably is. Yeah, yeah. They, they, and is. they overcompensate in Correct. a way where they, 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 where they think, oh, I want to take the pressure off of the kid so the kid doesn't have to worry about this. But right. then they get this, this mamby-pamby, right. uh, entitled uh, little brat right. who doesn't know the struggle. And I'm right. like backpedaling and doing the work to fix what I fucked up. Right. Right. Well, that's also, that only, you know, doing that Consciously is only actions. It doesn't, uh, you know, fix who you are emotionally. And right. ultimately, those things are going to read, you know, s- you know, subtly. They're not going to read through action. Exactly. The best way to be a great parent is to be, yourself be a great person. Yeah. They say if you want to find someone who you, to fall in love with, who, uh, who is your dream. Yeah. You be that person. <laughs> I think same thing is is true for for children. I, lately, I've been talking about on stage. I've been saying that look, if you're emotionally fucked up, because I'm in a pretty healthy relationship now. But it's not healthy. With Satan. Yeah, of course, always. Yeah. But yeah. I mean with a woman as oh. well. Yeah, threesome. Oh, okay. Me and Satan and Sarah. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> that sounds like a book title. <laughs> it should be. I'll yeah. write, I'll it write might that be. down. Give them a few months. <laughs> but I realize that, like, you know, you get older, so things, you, you give less of a fuck about things. You right. Know, that used to be really taxing and emotionally daunting, and that just happens naturally with age. But I think that the fundamental emotional wiring that you are, it's not going to change much. Right. I right. mean, all you can really learn is how to shut the fuck up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You know, just sort of like make better choices for yourself. So like for me, it's not easy for me on a day to day basis in my head. But uh, but when I interact with people, it's become better. But, you know, leave me to my own devices. I'll spin out. Mm-hmm. But right. like if I'm that's why my podcast is so important to me on a personal level is like I talk to two or three people a week. Yeah. You know, in-depth conversation about a lot of different things, one on one, face to face. And it's good for me. Yeah. To get out of myself. And to listen to other people and to, you know, that's the way you change, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. is by showing up for other people. And, and I guess that plays into the parenting thing to some degree. But, like, getting back to that, I think what, what, what's really important is the separate, allowing your, allowing your kid 
to to be their own person. Mm-hmm. You know, one way or the other. Because if you're panicky and worried and you only see them as part of you and, you know, whatever is going to happen to them is going to imply something about you, mm-hmm. that's one way of smothering. But the other way is just, like, being too nice and too – like, they at some point it was brought to my attention that – the primal union between mother and and child has to be separated. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and it's almost yeah. a conscious thing. Like, they're going to be what they're going to be. Sure. Like, I imagine, how old are your kids? 15 and 17. Right. So, I mean, you know, you can't. What are you going to do? Nothing. I'm finding <laughs> yeah. out the fucking hard way. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Because well, whatever you, I say doesn't matter anyway at this point. Well, but, you know, you've already said it. You Your work is really done and how they are able to process information and problem solve for themselves. It's that, you know, you have to push the kids out of the nest. And because, uh, you, know, you know, it's interesting. When I became an adult, I didn't have the processing tools to deal with intimate relationships. And I saw what my mother went through after the divorce. She basically locked herself in her room for about two years. Right. And had she said to me during that time, Rue, you know what? The truth is um, I am so hurt by what happened and I don't know how to process these, these in, in, this information. Mm. And I'm actually struggling. I'm actually struggling right now. But she didn't say anything. No. So I saw. And I actually have a lot of that same behavior pattern. That impulse? The impulse to say, shut everyone out. And I would hate to do that to a kid. Did you see that? You know, it was a great scene. It's just in my mind. Did you see that? What was that HBO show? The Little Lies show? Big Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies. He looks at me because I'm the female. Uh I thought it was great. No, these kids, they've gone crazy. The the producer here has given me his HBO because I cut the cord recently. His HBO pass so I can watch it. It was so well done. Between Reese Witherspoon and her and daughter, daughter, where she tells her not to sell her virginity yeah. online, that was a pretty. That's a, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. she had to offer up her own vulnerability. Yes. yes, yes. So the kid could go like, "Oh, mom's a person yes. that struggles, and now I'm going to integrate that into my decision making process emotionally." Yeah. That's, That's what it takes. Yeah. And and not every not every parent is willing to do that because they'd have to break the fourth wall. They'd have to break themselves down and become vulnerable. And that is what uh Right. But the tricky thing there, I would imagine, is like you don't want to take it a step further and, and then go ask your kid, Well, what should I do? Right. <laughs> that, right. That, that was right. sort of like some of what of the issue that I had growing up. Like my my uh, mother was incapable of making decisions for me because she didn't feel confident in that because of her own security, her own insecurity. So if I would say, can I go do this thing? She'd go, do you want me to say no? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Bless her. That's sweet. Oh, my God. And how is that manifested in your relationships with women? Well, it, it makes me... Um, a lot of times it's a little paralyzing in the sense that I, I defer. Hey, what is it exactly that, that I, I do? Like, um, like I tend to tolerate a lot, mm-hmm. you know, to a certain degree. And then when I stop tolerating, I shut down or I, or I, or I rage out. Right. You know what I mean? Like I'll put up with a lot. Yeah. Because I think I have to. Yeah. But you know, yeah. this, everything we're talking about is so, cause I know ultimately is it's, Ultimately, kids come here, they have their own agenda, yeah. and they have, they're going to work. Th- In fact, they say, you know, you choose your parents on some level. That's what they say. So that you can work through some angle, and w- whatever happens, happens, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that because of my, like, for me, what I've noticed, and I thought, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research into trying to figure out certain things about myself and about people, is that. You know, if you, my father was a little emotionally absent and um, and erratic, mm-hmm. uh, and you know what you end up doing is is seeking, 
you know, parents in life. You know, you I used to do a, mm-hmm. a line where I said, uh, you know, uh, emotionally, I'm like a kid lost at a mall. Mm-hmm. Just walking around going, Mommy! Yeah. Daddy! Yeah. So you look for these role models. That's scary. It is scary. I mean, that's the weird thing about not having a sort of lid on your personality or your sense of self is that you do move through the world a little too vulnerable in a way that that you don't have control over. Yeah. And, you know, I I figured it out. I wrestled it out. Have you, so have, we're going to go to break in a minute, but have you found mommy and daddy out there in the mall? Yeah. Apparently it's inside me. Hello. The food court. <laughs> yes. Exactly. No, that's that ultimately. Yeah, the food court is very important. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yes. I go to the food court a lot. Yeah, we all yeah. Do. yeah. Yeah. No, that's no, that's a that's a perfect point. Self-parenting is the answer and it's a weird thing and and it may seem like a psycho babble but but you got to give yourself a break and you got to give uh, you, you got to you know treat yourself better. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We've got Mark Marin with us. What a treat. Nice I'm so to see excited. You. Yes. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back after this. Let's talk about Squatty Potty, Michelle. Let's do. Yes, I love my Squatty Potty. It makes everything more more better. And the thing is, Rue, you don't realize how much you need it yeah. until you use until it. Until you use it. And I, you're like, what have I been waiting for? Well, I've got to confess, you know, the first time I had a high colonic, they were in the, the after you get the high colonic, they're in the bathroom so that you can eliminate the rest of the waste. Easier. Yes. And that's when I was first introduced to them. So now I have one in my house. Honey, uh, Squatty Potty offers the ultimate incomplete elimination, just like Ruth saying. If those people that specialize in cleaning out your colon have them there, trust me, this is the way to go. The science is simple. Squatting at the toilet unkinks the colon, allows your body to shed all that stuff on the inside. Squatty Potty offers multiple toilet stool designs and different sizes. Okay. Seven and nine inch. Oh, oh dear. Oh, my good. Ouch. I know. I know. Oh, my goodness. I can only handle the seven. Uh huh. But the nine inch works for some people. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I have a seven. I'm going to have to work my way up to the nine. Something tells me you're going to not have a problem at all. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Join the movement by visiting squattypottycom slash rue. Receive a free bottle of Fruity Booty Toilet Spray with a purchase of 20 bucks or more. Remember, you guys, a happy colon is a happy life. That's right. We are back with Mark Marin. So much to talk about. A minute ago, we talked about Obama. How did you land the Obama? In my mind, uh, the Obama interview was brought to you because I'm, this is how I imagined it. Yeah. I thought he's got all these really cool people working with him who know the pulse, who who know how to present a 21st century presidency. He um, And so he's reaching out to uh, to the new media yeah. kids. To, to say, this is who I am. This is who we are as Americans. Am I right? That is kind of what happened. Yeah, I think there were some fans of the show on his staff, mm-hmm. and they thought it would be an interesting idea to have the president do it, and they started reaching out. And my producer, Brendan McDonald, and myself were like, oh, that's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Really? The president? And we kind of said, that's not going to happen. And over the year, they check in every few months, and then all of a sudden, it's like, it looks like it's going to happen. Did they come to Highland Park? We, yeah. I said, well, that was the thing in I said. In your garage? Yeah. <laughs> the president of the United yeah, States right, was where, in your garage. Where, where you I, were. You're Same kidding. chair. He sat in my chair? Yeah, he did. How'd it feel? <laughs> it was, talk me through it. <laughs> Yeah, so that was the weird thing is like, you know, when they said it's going to happen, uh, I was like, well, what do I got to do? I'm going to uh, D.C. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever I got to do. And Brendan was like, no, they, they want to come to the garage. I'm like, With that's, the Secret Service? That's fucking ridiculous. Oh. 
No, yeah, that was crazy, man. Was your and neighborhood I, like, what the fuck is going, like actual WTF? Well, what happened was like, it was, it was funny because I don't register things properly, you know, and I had planned a trip to Hawaii and of course they, they, they wanted to come like, like then. Yes. And I said to Brendan, I said like, I can't they, you know, reschedule? <laughs> and Brendan's like, are you out of your fucking mind? It's the president. Like, it's like. And I said, I said to him, I said, well, I paid for the trip with points. I don't want to lose the points. I'm, t- I'm so with you, Mark. Like, I'm so there with you. I get it. And Brendan's like, you can afford to buy a new ticket and reschedule it. I'm like, I don't know, man. Uh, He's it's like, not refundable. And, you know, and he placated me, but never in his mind did he think that we weren't going to do it. Yeah. And it was interesting because I went to Hawaii where I usually go. And, you know, and what happened was they had to come to the house. I went. I think I tr- I switched it a little bit, so I was flying back literally the day before the interview. But I brought his first book, uh, "Dreams of for My Father," mm-hmm. right? Mm. Or of yeah, for my father, I think, which he wrote before he was uh, had presidential aspirations, really. And it was a memoir about his you know coming uh, into manhood and his relationship with his father. Because I thought to do what I do and to not politicize the podcast, other than having the president at that time on it. Um, I wanted to do what I do, which is connect with the the guy. Mm-hmm. So I figured, like, I'll read that book, and then I got to figure that guy's still in there. Mm-hmm. So let's. That was my agenda. Mm-hmm. And while I was away, uh, the Secret Service, a couple of them, came over to the house to do the preliminary kind of scouting mm-hmm. and uh, to get figure out what the param the perimeter would be and all that. And and Brendan flew in from New York to meet them there. And he said it was funny because they were looking for a place to put the snipers. Yeah. there's They needed two snipers. And apparently one of the Secret Service guys got up on top of the garage and Brendan was inside. And he hears the Secret Service guy go, uh, yeah, this is good. And he started jumping. And Brendan said the ceiling started oh, coming. Oh my God. And Brendan goes, no, it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> and they settled on my neighbor's house. And I had to ask my neighbor, Dennis, like, would it be okay when the president comes if we put a couple snipers up there? He's, he was thrilled. Like, yes. he's, he's retired, like, yeah. and, you know, this is a big day. Yeah, yeah. So that's how it converged on uh, the houses. What they do is they, they don't allow parking in the neighborhood, and they bring in, like, it was funny because a few days before, the eeriest thing about the whole operation was they set up these isolated phone lines in my, I have two bedroom house, small house, mm-hmm. in the second bedroom, these two boxes mm-hmm. that were hooked up to special AT&T lines that if all communications went down, mm-hmm. they would have access to the president. And mm-hmm. I was like, hope we don't need to use those. Uh-huh. But they were sort of humming <laughs> along in there, you know, before anyone got there. And I was like, that's a little intense, right? So they, they don't allow parking. And then they sent the day of, they sent a crew to tent the driveway. So they basically... Because their driveway comes up to the gate, yeah. which goes to the another piece of the driveway, then to the garage. Yeah. So they tented that. They built a carport with a tent. They cleared out the neighborhood of cars. The snipers came. You know, they needed to to put the dogs through the house, and mm-hmm. that was almost a deal breaker. I had three cats. Uh-oh. Oh, my God. So I said to the guys, I'm like, I got these cats. I don't know if the dog is going to be okay with me. Uh-huh. And they <laughs> and they were like, you serious? I'm like, yeah, yeah kind of. Uh-huh. And they were like, look, we'll, we'll do the dogs in the, you lock the kittens the cats in the bedroom. We'll do the rest of the house with the dogs, and we'll check the the, the room in the back by hand. We'll just go yeah. in there and look under the bed. So they saw the terrified cats and uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. cleared the house. But so the day of fifteen, about fifteen Secret Service agents come and they converge on the house and they brief in the small living room, and then about a dozen LAPD. And we had five, four or five listening stations out on the deck that we'd set up with headphones. The White House brought someone to record. They brought the photographer and. Um, and we waited 
you know, I was just sort of hanging around, just me and Brendan and all the uh, enforcement people. I was just playing guitar, trying to keep my head in the game. And then I was told that when the president is 20 minutes out, you know, we'll give you a heads up and you're going to meet him in front of the garage. He'll walk up the driveway. Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay. And then like, you know, like 20 minutes, you know, some time goes by and we see the Ospreys that, that are the escorts for the helicopter, the president. Uh So we see them in the air and then you see the helicopter. It's right. They're flying from here from the Beverly, uh, they were at the Hilton or somewhere. Yeah. They're flying him to the Rose Bowl and meeting the motorcade there because that's five minutes from my house. So, okay. So they wouldn't tie up the entire city. So when I saw those, I'm like, I think he's close, right? He's <laughs> right there. And uh, and then I went and stood there with a the Secret Service guy. And then, like, you know, I saw cars going by in the street. And then, like, up through the tunnel, all these people come. Like, there were staffers. It looked like about 10, 12 people. And I don't see the president and I'm standing at my garage, and all of a sudden I see a hand go up. You know, Mark, uh-huh. and there he is. There's President Obama, yeah. and I'm like, Mr. President. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he walks up, and he's like, "We're gonna have a good time, right?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I hope so," because <laughs> uh-huh. we had heavy shit to deal with that I didn't anticipate. That horrendous shooting uh, had happened the day before. Oh, in San Bernardino? No. Which which at one? the church? The the in oh yes, in South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that was like the day two days before, and we didn't even know if he was going to come. We knew that the yeah. only thing that would stop it, the trip, would be something of international uh, yeah. crisis, and it wasn't clear whether he was going to come the day before. They were weighing it, and he came. So things had to be addressed. Right. 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 And uh, you know, and we did it. How soon after he recorded it did it go on the air? Because the uh, the press was all over it. I think I do believe it, it probably went up the next day, and it, well, the press was all over it because he said the N word in the in in context of talking about racism. So nicotine, yeah, uh-huh. exactly, over and over again, over and over. Was, so he's a smoker. Yeah, so I know, why, but it was offensive. Correct. It was offensive. You say nicotine three or four times. It's yeah, enough already. We yeah, get it. Yeah, and forget about vinegar. Uh-huh. Don't say vinegar around yeah, me. No, okay, no, can't do it. <laughs> But yeah, but he said it, you know, in in a conversation, and I registered it, but I didn't think it was, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I, I've heard it before, uh-huh. you yeah. know, I, yeah. I'm a comedian, <laughs> I, you know, uh, but you know, it was a big deal to people. It's a uh, big, yeah, right. And uh, they all took it out of context, and it became a real viral thing, and it was uh, it was upsetting to me because, you know, the interview was a big interview and yeah. and the point he was making was a real point, but you know, the right wing media just said like, you know how he gets to say it. And you know, like, Oh my that, God. As they do. Well, that whole argument is so ridiculous. Oh it's like, uh, why can't we say it? What are you talking about? Right. You can say whatever you want. Just know that if you do say that, you're going to be hanging around with other people that say that. And if that's who your friends are going to be, well, then you have some self searching. Right? Yeah. yeah. But, but the interview was pretty amazing. And the amazing thing about it was, cause I get asked now, what would you have Trump on? I'm like, if he would play by the same rules, mm-hmm. which was that they, they did not vet the questions. They gave us final edit, mm-hmm. you know, cause this is a, you know, this is a thoughtful, you know, uh, intelligent man sure. who can handle himself. Absolutely. So I, I'm like, sure. If that, if that, if we get control and they did not, they did not vet the questions. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have an edit. They did it. They left. Uh, I did, uh, we chose to do two interviews post, uh, Post uh, Obama, which was Chris Hayes and Terry Gross, uh-huh. and then in terms of the the sort of media. What do you mean two post interviews? You, well, I mean they people wanted to talk to me. Oh, I see. Right, because right. it yes. was sort of an event to have Obama sure. come to your house. Right. Um, and did you edit? Did you edit his interview? No, not really. I don't think so. How long was it? An hour, right on the button. Right we had an button. hour. He came. We walk into the garage. There was one Secret Service guy behind me that I didn't see. There was some weird. Um, 
piece of equipment that yeah. was there for security that I didn't know what it was. It was some sort of mat, some sort of flak mat uh-huh. in case something went down. Did when you the look on his face when he walked into the garage, which is kind of a it's a like cluttered. A, it's cluttered. Place. Did you register any disgust on his face? <laughs> no, he all? talked about it. He goes, "Wow, a lot of pictures of you in here. It's a little narcissistic, <laughs> isn't it?" <laughs> But he also went to college down the street, so it was an interesting Weird. departure he point. He went to Occidental. Yeah, for a bit. That's right. So he had lived in the neighborhood. Oh, my goodness. Right? So the and conversation. How much, and are you, um, are, you're younger than him. Because I am I think I'm nine months older than him, which is the first time in my lifetime where I'm older than, than a president. president. I'm 53. Yeah, so, he's, so he's, he, you're way younger than him. Yeah. That's, it's such an, and talk about a career-defining moment for you. Mm-hmm. Before that, what was your what was your uh, other career defining moment? You've got the show on IFC. Yeah. I saw a couple of episodes this morning uh, on uh, Hulu or, or Netflix. One yeah. of those Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, that I saw the fourth season. Is that show still going on? No, I stopped it. The fourth season was the last season. I, I felt like we had done what we set out to do. Really? Yeah. You're not like uh, you know uh, Law and Order, where yeah. 22 seasons later, I didn't I didn't see the point. You know, like I well, there's money, there's money, right? But like, if for me, like the podcast does all right, and you know, I have a pretty small life, and I'm not really a money guy. You know, I I, I don't want to not have it, but I'm I'm not in in a crisis, and I don't seem to. I'm not one of those people that as I make money, I match my life to the amount of money. Like as I make money, I'm still in that shitty house. Uh-huh. I haven't fixed it. Yeah. It's almost embarrassing now. But uh, you know, maybe that speaks more to my anxiety or fear than no, I anything think it's else. A very but, smart thing, actually. But the weird thing about the whole podcast in general was, by the time I started it, I, I was pretty much you know out of the game and washed up, and I I'd really let go as a comic. Well, I mean, I was doing comedy, but I you know I didn't have a, a draw. You know, I've been you know I was always doing pretty good comedy, but I I didn't I never was a ticket seller. I never made a break. So, and I've been around a long time. So it was really an act of desperation that did not have any real, I had no ability to monetize at that time. None of us did. There was right. no, you know, the the medium, I just had good cosmic timing that mm-hmm. the medium grew along with me and I helped define the medium mm-hmm. to a certain degree. That was a fluke, not a plan. And we eventually learned how to monetize most, you know, all of us on some level over time as the medium grew. But but by the time I'd started, I'd, I had to really wrestle with, you know, what, what am I going to do at this point? You know, I'm 49 or however old I was, 45. You know, I, I didn't make it the way I thought I would make it. And I've got to be a grown up and realize my limitations to some degree and accept that maybe I'm not going to have a TV show. Maybe I'm not going to be a big comic. But I didn't want to be a little comic either. That was the other terrifying thing was if the only way I could make a living was being an unknown headliner doing, you know, B rooms, you know, I, I would rather be dead. So I, I was really at a weird place. But the, the, the point I'm making is that letting go of that stuff that like in, in my heart, like, all right, well, this, you know, this is life, you know, it didn't work out the way I planned and I'm going to have to live with that. You know, then the podcast starts and I had no real expectation out of it or anything, but you know, I started to talk and it became popular. And then now these opportunities start to happen. Like, you know, now I get, because of the podcast is, is popular. Then I get the TV show opportunity. Mm-hmm. I get a book opportunity. And these are things I was like, you know, I, I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it was like, yeah, okay, I'll fucking do it. Yeah. You know, I was excited to do it, but because I'd let it go, I I knew I could do it. Right. No, nothing was hanging on it. So you mm-hmm. feel secure in saying goodbye to the TV show because this is your, your natural intuition or your own 
flow and ebb, whatever, is actually guiding your career. Right. Once you let go, you were it was able to. Right. And because, like, you know, I was making a living on the podcast and stand up was starting to come around and the TV show, you know, as a young comic, you want to have a TV show. So we did the TV show and I did it on IFC, which most people don't watch. Uh, and we did it. They let us do it pretty much exactly how we wanted. I had the experience. We did 49 episodes. We did four seasons. And, you know, the fourth season was a, a tremendous creative and personal departure for the show that did things that, you know, the only way I wanted to do the fourth season is, is if we took some risks. And we did. And it, it found a bit of a following. And once it got to Netflix, it did well. And I was proud of it. But what do you do? Like, why go back? Like, most of those shows have a uh, uh, a structure that is repeated. Mm-hmm. So, like, after the fourth season, which was sort of mind-blowing, what, are we going to go back to the garage and just repeat this format mm-hmm. and refill it? Why? The money's okay. It's not, you know, it's not network money. Mm-hmm. And really it became about working with a network, a cable network that gave us a lot of creative freedom but didn't have financial incentive because mm-hmm. they don't have money, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. You look at the ads on IFC, it's not like they're hiding money. Mm-hmm. So if you can't even get a, a, a significant enough bump season to season to put money back into the show to take more risks or do more things, it's sort of like, well, you know, why? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. The, but, the, you know, the thing is, and we're going to go to break, too. Um, you have a voice. And as you're t- telling the story, I'm thinking about the different situations I would put that voice, this character, yeah. into, whether it's in a family or whether it's uh, as an air traffic controller yeah. or <laughs> whether you are a therapist yeah. who needs yeah. therapy yeah. or whatever. I mean, there's still... Uh, because of this show and because of the the podcast, we know the voice. We've come to love the voice. So um, let's see it in lots. Let's put it in women's clothing or something. You know, <laughs> Is that the next one. I, you know Maybe. what? I'm I'm doing. A sh- I did a show for Netflix called The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling Glow. Uh-huh. So I'm not in women's clothing, but I am in in 1980s clothing, surrounded by 14 women. Uh, that's good. That's Super a start. Hot. I'm Super very hot. proud of you. Those were amazing. Those clothes. Oh those my glow god. Wrestlers. We're gonna take a break. We'll be back with more Mark Marin. <laughs> Hey, Michelle, how easy is it to cook the recipes in the Blue Apron? Listen, first of all, back in the day when we didn't have Blue Apron, I'd have to go into the uh, recipe book, cookbook, recipe mm-hmm. book. Yeah. i got to go into my recipe <laughs> book over here. And then you look and then you write everything down. Oh, dear. But nine times out of ten, I even use an app on my phone for grocery shopping. So mm-hmm. I, you know, like sometimes you forget. I write it down right away so I don't forget. Yeah. And then I get to the grocery store, I buy everything, I come home and I'm inevitably missed one or two oh, things dear. because you're talking on the phone yeah long story short blue apron takes gets rid of all of that it takes care of everything you need for the recipes and what i love about blue apron most of all of course it's easy mm-hmm. it's healthy they they use their own farmers their own fisheries their own people so they know where it's coming from yeah they're not trusting it's all sustainable it's really really healthy and the good thing is each meal is under $10. That is the part that is so incredible. I feed a family of four. That's wild. Under $10 a meal. And it's free shipping. A lot of these places charge, you know, $29 on top of it to ship. Free shipping with Blue Apron. So even if I'm in Wyoming, yep. where we have the ranch, yep. I can get Blue Apron They'll there. deliver Blue Apron. They deliver to 99% of the U.S. 99%. I don't know yeah. how they do it. I don't know how they do it. It's unbelievable. And everything is measured out, Rue. So your card's here. You put it up there. You go, okay, this is what I need. It comes in a little bag thing. You have your knickknacks here. Mm-hmm. That they call them knickknacks, the, like the 
seasonings Fixings, and yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah right there the meat is separate or if you're doing a vegetarian meal it's everything is laid out my husband did it the whole time i was on tour for six months mm-hmm. it's foolproof it really really I want you is to send me a picture of the next time you make a meal because okay. what are the meals you have coming up that you're gonna um cook? the meal i have coming up is the three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano Ooh, and that sounds so good the beef teriyaki stir fry because lola if I could put her mouth just on a cow, uh-huh. she would eat the whole cow. Oh, so she's a meat eater. Carnivore the house down. <laughs> the opposite of me. Like, my eyes tear a little. I'm not going to lie. Uh-huh. But I'll cook it for her. Beef teriyaki stir fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice. They've also got crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. Wow. And are the recipes easy to read? So, no. Literally, they make it so any person can do it. My husband is not a cook. I've been with him for 20 years. He's never been a cook. Mm-hmm. When I met him, he's like, I make great omelets. His omelets suck. And I think he's made it twice in 20 years, right? He was just bragging. Yeah. He makes these recipes. Oh. He had a contest with my friend Stephanie, who we got set up. We got her, we gave her the three free meals, like uh-huh. the offer that we've got. Yeah. I told her about it, put her name on the mailing list. She got three free meals and they were having like a little Facebook food contest. Yeah. Really unbelievable, you guys. Flexible. You can customize your recipe each week based on your preferences, which is important. Yeah. Really, really important. So check out this week's menu. You could download the app or you can get your first three meals free on their website with, I said it before, I'll say it again, free shipping. Go to blueapron.com slash rue or the app, like I said, blueapron.com slash ru. Blue Apron is going to change your life and it's a better way to cook. We are back with Mark Marin. You mentioned the the uh, the glamorous ladies, gorgeous ladies, the gorgeous ladies. Mm-hmm. Really. Tell me, how is how close is that to what we remember as the, the, that the actual glow? gorgeous yeah. ladies? Yeah. Well, the Glow Girls. From what I understand, the show is called Glow Girls. No, it's called Glow. Okay, they were called Glow the yeah. Glow Girls. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. The show, from what I understand, they were able to get the name, and mm-hmm. they definitely honored the 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 original. Aesthetic, women, yeah. aesthetic, because th- th- this was another thing about letting go of things. Like I'd finished my show and I didn't really want to tour as a stand up. I didn't want to do anything. And I just wanted to relax and live life and do my podcast. And I get this, uh, my, my agent, my manager, someone in my management office found this script and my agent sent it to me, these sides. I don't even remember if I read the whole script. I must've. And it was for a show. I didn't know anything about it, but I read the character they're looking for. And it, I was just sort of like, I can be this guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do this. This is well-written, and I can be this guy. He's not exactly like me, but it's in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll put, I'll try. Uh, who do I go in to see? And they're like, well, they're not really reading people here. You can put yourself on tape. And I'm like, okay. So so I got my physical trainer, the woman who I train with a few days a week when I'm around. Mm-hmm. She's an actress as well, of course. So of course. I, I call her. I go, we read the other side of this. And we, we went to this office that I lease. And I got my part-time assistant on the iPhone. And I went down the street to the women who uh, who own the eyeglasses place. And I got some aviators. Like, cause uh-huh. it's from the 80s, mid-80s. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, this guy wears aviators. Uh-huh. And I put on a Lacoste shirt. Uh-huh. And I just did the scene. And we shot three takes of it and sent it to my agent. She sent it out. And I got cast. Wow. That. wow. And it, it's Genji Cohen. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, Liz uh, Flayhive and Carly Mensch created the show, and they're both from both oh, Orange is New Black and, Black and uh, Weeds, and they're they're really smart and uh, great writers. And uh, I got cast as this guy, and the, the angle of the show is, you know, because they gave us a lot of research material, but 
he's not based on anybody because we couldn't really do that. So the, mm-hmm. the angle of this show is, and I think it was also with the original Glow, was that it was supposed to be a TV show that kind of yes. rode the coattails of the whole Kogan craze mm-hmm. and the yes. first wave. So it was created as a TV show. So that was the idea is that I play this um, kind of washed up, you know, movie director who has done a couple of sort of uh, slasher movies, mm-hmm. who's trying to, you know, put together another movie, who gets uh, uh, brought in by this young guy who wants to do a wrestling TV show and he's got money. So the promise to me is like, I'll fund your next movie if you put together this show. So mm-hmm. I got to act as the manager and the director and the guy who creates this TV show. So mm-hmm. I got to cast these women as wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And then, and I said, like, how much do I need to know? And they're like, character knows nothing about wrestling. And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> so I don't have to do any research. Yeah. So that was the premise. And then the, all these women had to learn how to wrestle and they all did learn how to wrestle. Wow. And it was very moving. Wow. You know, as a, cause I play this, like as an actor, I can do a few things, you know, I can be me or I, what I've learned is that I can turn things off in me to honor the character. Like, this guy's not really a neurotic character. Mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. a little ego-driven and a little cranky, but he's not self-effacing. He's not neurotic. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, so I just shut that off. Yeah, yeah. And I honor the script, and I, maybe I can do this. I hope it came out well. Now, who's, who's it for? Is it for Netflix? Yeah. And do you have any idea when it's going to come out? Yeah, June 29th. I think. And That's so, amazing. who are who are some of the ladies? Is it like all these young girls, like Selena Gomez and? Uh, uh, it's Alison Brie is uh-huh. uh, the Love lead. Her. Betty Gilpin. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I should know all their names by the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kia, what's her last name? One woman was an actual wrestler. Uh huh. Um, I, I, you know what? This is going to be helpful for my press junket. Yeah. I really need to know. <laughs> yeah. Kate, well, uh, I, I, they're they're all. None of them were wrestlers, and all, a lot of them came from different places. Some of them are actors. Some of them, uh, Kia's an actual wrestler, uh, but a lot of them, it's their first gig. Yeah. Um, but it, the fascinating thing was that, is that the ring, you know, we shot at these studios, which were right by my house, another cosmic stroke of luck. Uh-huh. I didn't even know they were there. Wow. In Atwater, 10 minutes from my house. Oh, wow. wow. There's three stages there that apparently the guy who owns them just built a courtroom set and a police set, and he rents out to procedurals. Oh, I've I've worked there. Yeah. I've worked at that. I've seen the court because you know they used to do the um, uh, William Shatner show there um, with what was it public public oh, Boston oh. Public? Oh yeah yeah yeah. I think that's, that, right. that's so, where. Yeah, I've worked there before. Yeah, those those stages, and um, you know, in, in working with Allison and, and Betty, but me and Allison have this thing. It's not a romantic thing, but we're underdogs. Yeah, and she is just a, a genius actress. Like, it's a very hard character that she did. She plays an actress who's desperate for a role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's going out for these horrible auditions. And she comes out to do this audition for a show she doesn't know. And it's this wrestling right. thing. Right. And all she wants to do is, you know, get a job. Yeah. So to ride that line of of sort of desperate, ambitious, and charming is not easy. That's it's quite, a tricky. Yes. And she did it so brilliantly. And like I get to watch, we set up this whole gym thing so there's a ring. Yeah. So I get to watch from my office these women doing what is essentially, you know, this, you know, almost like dance like stagecraft. You know, yeah. like they're engaging in this physical stuff. There were times where I'd like get choked up just at the physicality of it. Like when you see a play or yeah. a musical, so many people engaging like that. Yeah. You're just it's moving yeah. the humanity of it. So the stories are great, and uh, and they all like you know became wrestlers. And the outfits like it's not it's it's true to the time, nineteen eighty six, but it's not camp. It's yeah. tricky to not overdo that. Sure, because where... glow was camp. Yeah, well, it was camp in retrospect, right? Yes. I mean, at the yes. time, that's what I mean. They then, were, right? Yeah. They 
they were wearing what they was available. You, yes. know, you, know, you know, unfortunately, outfits in the 80s, you know, in, looking at them, because I did for three months, not the most flattering time. No, 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 no not at <laughs> no. all. Not at all. Now, wasn't um, Jackie Stallone involved in yes. the, the, the Glow of Yeah, and the show's June 23rd is when it is, starts okay. on, on Netflix. Netflix. Yes. What, I got to get all is, this stuff Is together. there a Jackie Stallone character? Um, who she was the uh, the ah. sort of matriarch. She of was Jackie. Well, for people who don't know, of course, is uh, Sylvester Stallone's mother is Jackie Stallone, who's still with us. Uh, you know, but I, I just want to go no, back. No, here's what it is. It's really about the primary characters are you know Allison Brie plays this desperate actress who 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 gets cast. I cast mm-hmm. her, and then she's got a best friend who was a soap opera actress, a successful actress played by Betty Gilpin, mm-hmm. who has recently retired because she had a baby. It's not clear whether she got fired from the soap opera mm-hmm. or she, fi- or she uh, you know, um, you know, took a baby leave. But but they're best friends, and there's a tension to that because, you know, one's successful and one isn't. Mm-hmm. And I have to, I, you know, I don't want to give away any of the story. I have to somehow, could, there's a tension between them that's natural and earned, and I have to cajole Betty into coming out of baby retirement uh-huh. to be part of the wrestling team. I see. And part of it is to is to sort of, you know, fight with Alice. Yeah. Now, I want to go back for a minute. <clears throat> a minute ago, you said that um, it, for this character, you were able to extract the neuroticism out of your character. She said, in your wheelhouse is, you know, you acting like you with... Intense, ne- cranky, e- smart. Yeah. <laughs> but you were able to take that out of a performance. How were you able to do this? Is that years of therapy? When did you become aware no. that you could do that? Well, I mean, <clears throat> look, I mean, I am who I am, but like theoretically the job is actor. And, and I, I don't claim to be a great actor, but after doing four seasons and learning how to be in front of a camera and- you Did know, you watch yourself? Would you watch the episodes? On my show? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I had to because I was part of the editing. I was part of the writing. I was, you know, and I was, you know, I directed a couple. Was it through that process that you were going, oh, I, I, I get it. I well, see what I, I'm doing. I got comfortable, you know, like I knew from watching peers of mine who were comics kind of, you know, do their first seasons of shows. You're not going to get it right the first season. You're going to be stiff. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a learning curve. There just is. It's the nature of it. So I was able to know that and accept that mm-hmm. and not beat myself up too hard. Like have the faith that like, all right, if I'm, you know, I'm going to figure out how to do this. I know I can listen. I know I can be on stage. I know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not self-conscious to, when a camera is there, but like there's still something you got to learn from doing it. Yes, so I think with the experience of doing my show, a lot of that stuff was in place. But with the one thing that I I, I could definitely grow as an actor because there are certain things I need to learn how to do. But when, the one thing I knew was that, look, this is not me. You know, I have to honor the script. These writers are good. So whatever I need is going to be on the page. Mm-hmm. And if they want me to add something, they'll ask me to. And maybe we'll do a little riffing. But if the guy's on the page, that's the guy I play. Mm-hmm. So if if he's not going like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Where am I going to be? What happened? Yeah. When does this happen? Then I don't do that. Yeah, That's me. That's not this guy. Right. So right. play that. You know, play the script. Yeah. And that's sort of what was in my head, you know, in order in terms of turning it down. Because you are. It's a finite amount of time. It's not your whole life. And when they go, all right, action. You know, you're that guy. Yeah. And that guy's not, you know, you may be, you know, somewhere in my mind, I'm going like, you know, maybe being me. But you try and shut that down, engage with the immediate environment of what's happening in the scene and honor the script. And and that should, you know, pull you through. Right. Now, in, in stand up, uh, I've done it for so many years. At what point in your stand up career did you find your voice? Did you get up there with your voice or did you, you know, a year or well, two I, years? Well, I, I think that really for me, 
you know, I'm not sure I, I got into stand-up to be an entertainer. I think I was solving some what I thought were either, you know, uh, the problems of humanity or my own problems, that I needed a place that was mine where I could, uh, you know, express myself freely. And I tried a lot of different things through college and stuff, you know, writing, poetry, acting a bit, you know, uh, photography. Like, I was always a creatively driven person. But the, I think in, in retrospect, the the drive was to, you know, find myself. Mm-hmm. So for the first decade or so, I was very angry. I was defiant on stage. I was a shocking comedian. I was provocative. And, you know, it was uh, it, uh, it was really kind of, you know, fuck you like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and I used to do a bit on stage where I'd say, uh, that's what I do. I push the audience away and see if I can pull them back. I push them away and try and pull them back. It's a little dynamic I call dad. You know, so, <laughs> so, like, you know, in looking at my evolution as a comic, what ultimately happened was I was very scared and very defensive, but funny, but it was really button-pushing funny. And about five or six years ago, you know, after I I got some notoriety for the podcast, and the podcast enabled me to really, you know, be all that I am, yeah, personality-wise. Mm-hmm. Not funny, you know, uh, you know, sensitive, sad, whatever. It was really all of me. Mm-hmm. So once people started coming out to see that, they knew me from the podcast, I'm like, well, they know me. So why... You know, I don't have to be defensive. Right, right, right. And, you know, once I kind of built an audience, and that kind of played over even with people that don't know me. What happened was something relaxed, and then one day, it was probably five or six years ago, I got, I was waiting to go on stage, and I just had this moment where I'm like, I live here, mm-hmm. and I've lived here a long time, and there's nothing frightening about this. Wow. And, like, I'm actually excited, whereas before I used to be like, oh, fuck, they're not going to like me. What am I going to do out there? Yeah. How's this going to go? Oh, that guy can just looking back from the curtain. That uh. guy's going to be a problem. Yeah. That <laughs> well, some things don't change. Those people still exist. Right. But like for me, it was like Perception. I get on stage and I'll go to the sound check and I'll be like, this is going to be great. This is fe-. like I'm excited and like I'm more comfortable up there than I am in a lot of other parts of my sure. life. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. You know, that's your space. Yeah. You have control of that space. It's your time. And this is this is what I do. And that really happened fairly recently. Well, that's interesting. We're going to go to break. But that's interesting because I know everyone in show business or every artist is looking for that sweet spot where they feel comfortable. And I was just just wondering how it happens and how are you able to get out of your own way to allow that to come through on our show we see these kids come and we give them challenges to do and they go through that same process that you just described which is oh that's that girl's going to be a problem uh, I, but i'm not funny what are you talking about? and where does that live in a human's consciousness that that they have to continue that same cycle which is such an interesting that's why i was interested shame it's shame, but it's also it's habits. It, it's it's um you know it's, comfort zone. It's a habit of feeling. Put listen. I come from. I talked about this on your your podcast. Where I come from the East Village, a bunch of kids. We were all came to New York to become stars with Andy Warhol or whatever. Yeah. And um, a lot of those kids who came to New York are still there doing the same thing because they branded themselves a starving artist. So they and they never. And, and there were many times when I said, take my hand. There's a place for you at the writer's table. Come with me. They couldn't do it because they were still stuck in that limited uh, perception of themselves. It's safe. 
It's safe. And right, because you don't have to really you don't have to really get up there and be naked. And you can complain still. And you can still complain. We got Mark Marin. We're gonna take a quick break. <laughs> All right, okay, let's get real, Michelle. Let's talk about poop. I'm in. You know what? Everybody does it and everybody is Kind of doing it incorrectly. Yes. If you really want to eliminate your poop, all the waste in your colon, you've got to get a squatty potty because the squatty potty aerodynamically yes, that's a good word. allows your colon to unkink. That's it. Squatting in the bathroom, just like Ruth says, unkinks the colon, and that allows our body to shed all of that unwanted literal crap that's yeah. in there. Squatty Potty offers multiple toilet stool designs, making your porcelain throne fit for any king or queen. I love that clear one. You've got the clear one, I do. You? I do have a, a, a white plastic one. Yeah. I have the, the, the wood, like the teak one. I have the teak one. Yes. Yeah. And I have two clear ones. Like I, I told you, I literally have them in every single bathroom because after I had problems, this is personal, yeah. but I had issues with constipation for years, yeah. years and years. When I got everything together and mm-hmm. changed my diet and cleaned, this is a necessity yeah. because when I started getting colonics and got my body like into this well-oiled machine, mm-hmm. I still wasn't pooping correctly. Squatty potty changed my life. You know, we just redid the New York place. I've got to get some squatty potties for New York. Yes, you have to. And those new ones we're talking about, it's called the Squatty Potty Clear. Oh, yeah. So, so, so futuristic. It is. It's like lucite and it goes with every single thing. That's what I love about it. And it doesn't just help you squat, you guys, Squatty Potty. They sell these uh, toilet sprays that smell incredible called Fruity Booty. What did you call I me? I called you a Fruity Booty bitch <laughs> all the way. And they have bidets that are like 38 bucks. Oh. It costs 10 minutes to install. Super easy. So it's also less waste for the universe and sure. all that stuff. Like yeah. carbon footprint. So join the movement by visiting SquattyPotty.com slash Rue, and guys, you get to choose between the 7-inch uh-huh. or the 9-inch. What? If you're ready. Oh, my goodness, I Michelle. can only handle the 7-inch, Rue. Uh-huh. I know that's, you know, not what's written on bathroom walls. Right, right. I have the 7-inch, but I, 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 you know, I'd have to work my way up to the 9-inch. I think you're ready. <laughs> okay, you. if you think so. Rue, uh-huh. the time has come. Okay. <laughs> All right. Join the movement, you guys, literally, by visiting squattypotty.com slash Rue and receive a free bottle of Fruity Booty Toilet Spray with a purchase of 20 bucks or more. Remember, a happy colon is a happy life, and Squatty Potty, we love you. That's right. Get your life. Get your life. Squatty potty. Squatty potty. We are back with Mark Marin. So much to talk about. My goodness. Now, Michelle, I saw uh, the Mark uh, Marin. It's called Marin on, mm-hmm. on, I saw it on Netflix. Hilarious. At one point, uh, the character talks about Sam Kinison. Did you ever work with him? Oh, yeah. You did? And when I was a kid, yeah, I was the doorman at the comedy store down the street. Really? When did you come out here to Hollywood? I came out after college. You know, I guess, I guess it was uh, 87. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you know, I kicked around. I wrote a screenplay with uh, my buddy Steve Brill, and then we became not friends, but we're friends again. Uh-huh. I'm actually going to premiere of his tonight. He does Sandler's movies. Uh, and then I, you know, I auditioned over there for Mitzi, and she gave me a job as a doorman and a non-paid regular. And I was there about a month, and then you know that monster took me under his wing, and I, you know, I was already well on my way to having a full-fledged uh, cocaine and booze problem, and. You know, I did my uh, graduate work uh, cutting lines for Sam. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Wow! But uh, yeah, he was a—he uh, was something. Well, you know, I, I you know the cocaine thing is an interesting thing for me because you know I I dabbled myself, uh-huh. but and even when I, you know, I don't know how a person is able to sustain uh, a habit. 
because your body starts bleeding. Your body says, uh, no, thank you. Yeah. I don't know how people can do it for year after year after year. That drug? Yeah, yeah. there's a couple of drugs I don't know how they do. It seems that some people can have a, a prolonged success uh, if they don't get out of control with right. alcohol and <laughs> Yeah, but, but wouldn't with Coke, does it like my nose would stop up? My nose would literally close up to where I couldn't breathe. I couldn't put anything up People's there. People's noses collapse. Yeah, no, yeah, that happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I never got to that point. But, you know, it's weird when you're in it. You think of all little remedies. You know, you put water up there. You, sure. You're constantly blowing your nose. Like or the I, Afrin or, you know, what bad. Yeah, Stevie yeah. Nicks did. You know what the, the Stevie Nicks thing to what, do is the, the booty bump. You've oh, heard yeah, of oh, the booty bump, right? <laughs> well, that's not. Does that work? Well, you can't really do that with other people. Well, <laughs> you've got to be. Listen, that I, guess, I guess you can. Yeah. That's true. You know, at the, at the end of a big Coke run, at one point you want to get high. So, you know, a booty bump is probably going to be the best Everything wears down, everything wears off, and it starts to take more. You know, I was fortunate that, like, somehow I, uh, you know, in terms of losing control of my life completely, I always had this weird thing that if I if I started to lose my mind, I would stop. Mm-hmm. And I, I, lost, I lost my mind. I, you know, be, between the lack of sleep and being around that, you know, devil that Sam was, that mm-hmm. bully, uh, you know, lunatic, you know, I, I started, you know, hearing voices in my head, and, mm-hmm. you know, I got out there. I got mm-hmm. out there. And uh, I left. Were you so you weren't with Sam Kennison at the end? Hell of it? no, no. You're lucky. Yeah, uh, did, 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 was were people predicting that? Because um, how did he die? He had a heart attack. No, he got in a, in a car accident. Yeah. Oh, was he but driving? He was, he was driving, but it was someone hit him. I see. The head-on collision. You know, like the weird thing about Sam is like he was a, a, a fairly wrong-minded guy, mm. but a very powerful comedian mm-hmm. and uh, you know ballsy. Like you know, like. When I got to L.A., I, I was not really a fan, but when I saw him work live, I'm like, holy shit, this, this, he's taking it out mm-hmm. there. Like, he's he's carving out new territory mm-hmm. for people to, you know, to fill in a way. Like, you know, like, if this is the boundary pusher, this is it. Him and Hicks, you know, Hicks was a lot more high-minded and, and decent. But Sam was a, a bit of a monster, and, you know, he was a preacher. But so I, I didn't, uh, you know, he we always thought he would die. You know, we I, there, did he we, think he would die early? I think he was because he was a preacher. Whatever he thought was that, like, you know, if he had a few seconds at the end, Jesus would take him back, right? So he was going to be as bad as he could be, negotiate, yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he was a you know, he was a real deal sure. Christian, yeah. But uh, but the, well, the the weird what? How do you be a real deal Christian and do the amount of drugs that Sam Kinison? I really did? think that he had navigated something in his mind, like because he comes from a family of preachers, like right. real deal Baptist right. preachers. And I think that, you know, I really think it became about being the antithesis of that, you know, being, you know, satanic and then, you know, really testing the idea. I think that the, if I'm not mistaken, the nature of the Christian gig is that if you got a second to, to ask for forgiveness, you'll get it. Sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he wanted to take that out. Yeah. So you came. Uh, unbelievable. He, it's unbelievable. You came here uh, and did the stand-up gig in like '87, which was. But like, I was like a non-paid regular. I was lost. I was like this, you know, kind of a half a hippie kid with a bad, you know, not, you know, a lot of coke. And then, like, you know, inside a year, you know, I hit the wall. I was living at the comedy store, literally. Her mm-hmm. Mitzi rented the house up top behind Mitzi the store. Mitzi B, Mitzi Shore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was there in that, you know, halfway house for comics, basically. Who else we, was up there? Uh, at, there were people in and out. Sam lived there. No, he didn't live there, but Tamayo Otsuki, who mm-hmm. Sam used to date, lived there. So 
it was my job to sort of set up the parties on the Monday nights, you know, mm-hmm. no cover night. So he'd give me a bunch of money. I'd buy the booze. He'd come up there with the freaks and terrorize Tamayo, you know, because they were broken up. So it got ugly. It'd go on for two mm-hmm. or three days. So when I was there, Tamayo was there, uh, Todd Lemish, Jimmy Schubert for a little while, the sound guy, Todd. A lot um, of people. Yeah, there's a lot of rooms there. I was in Dice's old room. Dice mm-hmm. had lived there briefly, um, not when I was there. But it was a notorious place. Is Crest that- Hill. Is that scene, uh, the, the the comic scene in L.A., of course, all these comics come from around the United States to L.A. to emulate the path of so many. And, and, and there, there are so many who've come through that that place who are huge, huge people. Yeah. And now, of course, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live is also that thing, too. But uh, Sketch is sort of like the primary Source of of comic talent has, has, has the sketch storyline replaced that sort of uh, comedy I, it has store a bit, thing? I think. Well, no, the comedy like comedy is very healthy right now. You know, the the store was struggling and it went through a lot of weird times. And Mitzi uh, got sick and she's still ill and and um, she's no longer in charge. Um, her son Peter has the reins to the club and he sort of uh, you know cleaned it up and made it uh, a, a put security in and got mm-hmm. it running cor- correctly. And he's up in Portland. And Paulie's around, but he doesn't have the reins of the place. But now, you know, between all of us working there and tweeting about it and this kid Brenton over at the store, he does a lot of social networking. We all became sort of proud of the place. It's always packed. Mm-hmm. And it's a diverse audience. And there's all kinds of people coming in. There's a lot of comics around. Is there's the debauchery more... still? I, you know, I'm old and I'm sober. Yeah, so right. I, I don't know. I am at, It doesn't feel like it's at the level it was because it was sort of accepted. During the late 80s, you know, you had the Roxy up here. Yeah. And there was this direct line between the porn industry, the rock and roll mm-hmm. industry, and the comedy yes. industry. Yes. And it all sort of filtered through Sam. So this whole area, this five-mile radius, was just a cocaine clusterfuck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was everywhere. Uh-huh. Is it like that? No. Yeah. Right. It's so funny uh, for people who come into the business, you know, there is no real route to take. And you named all you named all these people who used to to live there. And you obviously have had found success in this business. What is the last? It was right under the wire. Well, it it happened. But uh, uh, I think about all those people. What happens to all those people? The names, a lot of those names I've never heard of Mm -hmm. before. I can tell you what what (laughs) what happens to them. They're still living upstairs in the comedy store. No, you know, it's like it's a hard business. It's a it's sad a business. business. And comedy is like a little more um, uh, relent. What's the word I want? Uh, unforgiving. Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing about stand-up is that if you remain funny, you can go be funny somewhere. Mm-hmm. But but depending on what your expectations are and, you know, where you fall in the game, it's a very hard thing to leave. And that was one of the things I had to deal with when I started the podcast. It's like. You know, I would rather kill myself than quit because the pride involved. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. But a lot of smarter people than me at different junctures have you know, like like uh, they stopped mm-hmm. and they went and worked, uh, found a job. You know, where you know, it's some in the business. A lot of people that start and stand up, they they know well enough that if they've got a knack for writing jokes, they can become writers, producers, showrunners. They can write for other people. Those are smart people. Mm-hmm. The people that put all their eggs in the stand-up basket, that's a real crapshoot. Mm-hmm. And there's only about 10 dudes, uh, you know, at any if given that. time, yeah. you know, making a good living doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. If, if, and if you're one of the other 5,000, you know, you're hammering it out out there on the road. Yeah. And, and it doesn't end well for a lot of guys. And, and there's a lot of sad stories out there. Do you, do you find that with your success that the, the people you run into those people and uh, did you have to sort of negotiate uh, your success in a way to not make them feel 
bad about their well, lack of the, success? Well, the one thing about my success is that no one's going to say that I it, it came easy or that I didn't earn it. Right. And that's a that's a rare position to be in. Like I, you know, I'm happy being the the level I'm at. You know, I don't want to be Louis. I don't want to sell out arenas. You know, I don't want to be Aziz. I don't want to be Chappelle. That seems like way too much pressure. You can't. It's hard to live a life. You know, you know, and I don't have that weird ambition of like, like, you know, half of me is sort of like, I'd like to quit working tomorrow. These, you know, some of these guys are like, they keep going out. It's like, how much money you need, man? And it's about something else. Yeah. Kevin Hart at this point, it's he's not, it's got to be about something else. Well, you saw the, the Joan Rivers uh, uh, documentary where she would continue this, this quest to be, to be, she say, look at this piece of my my program, uh, uh, my calendar here. These, these empty, white. these empty spots is that's death to me. Yeah. And it's like, lady, you're Joan Rivers. You're worth two hundred million dollars. At what point well, is she it said, okay? She said in that documentary that she felt that she hadn't made it yet. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't really feel that anymore. And in this culture we live in, since making it is so fractured. Correct. And that if you find your people and you can, you know, show up for them and make a living, that's that's a great thing. Um, but in terms of like, you know, I I just try not to like because I you know if I get righteous or I get cocky, it's very unappealing. So I try to be respectful of other people. And you know, like I know from being a bitter comic for most of my life <laughs> and spiting. Uh, you know, people who are more successful than me and resenting them and being, you know, you know, hostile to them that, you know, I might have some of that coming, mm. but uh, I don't provoke it. Right. And, you know, I try to when I go on the road, use new people, use local people. Mm-hmm. Sadly, uh, just bad news today. I had this woman open for me in Austin last weekend. Uh, this woman, LaShonda Lester who did a beautiful job and was very funny, passed away yesterday. Oh. And I read I did, about that. Yeah, and it, like I just met her, and I just saw her, and she just opened for me. I guess she had kidney problems and heart problems. I don't, I don't know what happened, but it's devastating. And you know, she's about to, you know, do her first special. Mm-hmm. And oh man, it's a, you know, it's a hard life all around. But I do try to give back. I think I felt always felt that the podcast was giving back to the community uh, of comics, and mm-hmm. that you know, and I try, you know, you it does get a little overwhelming because when people see an outlet, they want it. You know, they want. Why can't I do this for you? Will you do this for me? And, you know, a lot of times I just detach completely. And I used to hate people that did that to me. Why aren't you emailing me back? And after a certain point, it's not out of disrespect. It's like, you don't know how much of this is coming at me. Right. And I don't know how to handle it. Right. And I'm sorry. Yeah. And and it's not really your job to explain how show business works. A lot of people still don't understand. Well, what I always used to say, show business is not your parents. Right. And, and you know, it took me 20 years to realize it's a fucking job. It's not a meritocracy. That's right. You know, there's no guarantees, and you chose it. Yep, that's right. And it don't owe you nothing. It doesn't. It's a hard pill to swallow, especially when you you know, you you grow up in in the. Sort I of, just want to be a star. Yeah, it's like, honey, there's so much more to it than that. But we grew up in kindergarten with this idea of equality and what's fair. It's like one for you, one for me, one for her. One. It, but in real life, that is actually not how it. Sometimes she gets a lot more, yeah. or yeah. you know, and it's and it doesn't even have has nothing to do with even talent. There's so many factors, but it was so great talking to you. You're such a smart guy. And it's interesting catching you at this point in your life with being as reflective as you are and and really understanding 
wh- what your voice is and, and, and where it comes And who you are. And where God. it comes from. Yeah, thank God it's right. But you can tell you've done the work. You've done the hard yards. Every day. Yeah. Every day. And, you know, you know, everybody should be so lucky to, to, to be able to, you know, come full circle and to actually get to a point where you can enjoy it. Well, that, that that's the next phase. <laughs> I believe that you can do You're it. You're on your thank way. You very much. I believe yeah. you can do it. Well, Mark Marin, thank you so much for Great joining seeing you. us. Thanks thank for you having so me. Much. All right. And Michelle, my darling, until, until next time. time. Bye. Bye. Can I get an amen? <laughs> can I get an amen? If you can't love yourself, how in the hell you gonna love somebody else? Can I get an amen? And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell you gonna love somebody else? Amen. <laughs>